Is it important for a jazz musician to be located out of New York City? Here's the deal with New York, because I'm from California. In New York, every gig is a matter of life and death. Explain that. Well, it's really competitive here. And especially when there was like, I caught, I caught the end of the music business as it existed in New York, not forever, but from the early 40s when there was NBC staff, CBS staff, ABC staff. So you had all these staff orchestras and you had the hotels that had jazz. So the big bands were all, every hotel had a big band as well as the clubs like Cotton Club and so-and-so. And even in the old, before jukeboxes, my Trump teacher told me even Chinese restaurants would have a little trio. Every There was music everywhere. And then when Madison Avenue came, and then there was all this jingle recording, which was huge in New York, a lot of that was jazz musicians who right. did all that, as well as all the Atlantic records. So you were walking into a town where, if you were going to come to New York, there's a certain pedagogy you know, is it pedagogy or pedagogy? Pedagogy. I've heard both. Which one I think I, I think it's pedagogy, but... but it is. It's pedagogy. There's a certain pedagogy to the New York thing, way of playing, which is came from a combination of, you know, orchestral music, concert band music, and big band music, and it was all about being able to blend, you know, having a certain uniformity of sound. So you could go into any situation and be able to play. So it was a certain way of playing your instrument that was very, very high level. Now you go to some other places like I'm from California, gigs a gig, everyone's having a good time, they don't care, you know. But in New York, you know, you don't know who's there, you don't know where that gig's gonna lead. So every single gig was like kind of the gig. Even if it was like a real small gig, it felt like there was no such thing as a small gig. It felt like every gig was could have been like the biggest gig of your life, even if it was a tiny little gig. Do you still treat it that way? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there are no, like... There's not, like, tourist gigs here. Like, every gig is life or death. Yeah, you're just doing it all like it could be your last gig. You know what I'm saying? You go to other places, it's like a little bar gig. Like, I never did little bar gigs or, like, cruise ships or little just playing for people. I mean, when I, actually, when I played in, like... Haitian band. I did play for dances, you know, when I was young. You'd play in Haitian bands or Colombian bands or... But by the time you got into, like, the salsa bands, then that's pretty serious because you're playing with Hector Laveau or these real heavy guys. But can you give me an example of where somebody might have not taken it as seriously as possible and maybe doesn't play anymore? Like, is it like that? Oh, yeah. Like, you get a bad reputation. Like, I'll never forget, like, one time... um. I used to do a lot of salt. And then you're expected to just be able to walk into a gig. It's a very unique thing here where, you know, and the music's in front of you and you just play it. That's, if if you're like at that level, you should be able to walk into any gig. And then, you know. So I got to the point where I was really, I had kind of worked my way up from, or after college, Haitian bands, which were kind of like the lowest rung because it was such late night not musically but just socially it was like very late at night pay wasn't great sets were really long it was really and you'd be playing way out in queens or way out in long island or connecticut and get home like five in the morning the next level up kind of you get to either colombian gigs cumbia because a lot of those guys weren't really professional musicians they were also very loud very simplistic music but you're playing for dancing you know but you're getting paid you know you can pay your rent then next you get to um, Dominican music to merengue because then at least you're playing in Manhattan or close by in Brooklyn you don't have to travel that far so and it pays a little better um, and then once you got that level and you get salsa music which musically was much much better but by the time I got around less people were dancing to salsa but it was almost like almost art music you know it was like compared to cumbia and and, and merengue and whatnot. But and there's this, this different levels and different... Different levels, like like the really... Because it was very... Like, for instance, when you play cumbia, like a lot of stuff is on the beat. Dee-da-da-da. And salsa is all these, like, uh, rhythmics off the beat. And you have to be... And I got really good, so I could just walk into any gig 
and just be able to read the book. I played second trumpet, so that was always like a first trumpet player. But I could like blend, you know, with no rehearsal, no anything, just count the tune off, and it sounded perfect. And one, and then I kind of stopped doing that. I was doing more of my own thing. And one day I got called last minute. Oh, can you make a salsa gig? It was nearby. I walked down and did it. And man, I had like lost the ability. Like I just had been so long, and that music is so exacting, <laughs> very specific. The guy just kind of looked at me like, "Wow, what happened?" And it's like, it's like, yeah, they weren't calling me for those gigs anymore because it, it would be clear that like I had lost the ability to read sight, read that music, and and do that. And there were other guys who could do it, so that, that was kind of the end. Of, I mean, I didn't really. I was, it was a point in my life where I, that really wasn't what I wanted to be doing anyway. It wasn't like, oh, I wish I could still be doing a million salsa. Well, they were less and less salsa gigs anyway. But yeah, that'll happen if you get on a gig and you don't make it. People know, like, yeah, well, he's not playing that anymore. Wow. Um, I should introduce you. So, okay. I'm in a hotel room in New York City with Stephen. Bernstein, is that the correct that's, pronunciation? That's the correct pronunciation. Um, a jazz musician who I got to see about a month, two months ago in Toronto, and you were playing with Henry Butler and your Hot Nine band. Our Hot Nine band. Your, well, for me, it's yours. Okay. <laughs> Both are yours, I guess. But it was, um, I've, I've worked with Henry, and um, Henry's part of this podcast series as well, but um, I couldn't, my, as my wife said, my, I couldn't. You you basically had the attention of most of the audience members. I think there was something about you on stage that just was mesmerizing, and you know. And this is something you have this killer band. You have Henry Butler, who's just off to the side, wailing away, who's a musical genius, and then you have everybody else who I presume are top notch musicians. Oh yeah, and yet. The focus tends to go to you because you just seem to have this passion for music that just oozes off the stage. Well, that's nice to hear. Thank you. But I, I don't know if you, I mean, to me, it just seems like there's something about the way you, you lead the band. And I'm, I was curious as to see how, how it worked because um, I presume that some things are charted, but I think a lot of the solos must be off the cuff improv right yeah 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 there's and a then, lot there's a lot and then there's a lot of stuff that are just hand signals and cues that aren't charted i mean a lot's charted but i like to leave room in my arrangements for things to happen organically so i've developed a way of arranging like most people who do many people write things out it's the whole thing is written out mm -hmm. and i'm very comfortable with having sections where we don't and i like having the unknown to me mystery is a very important part of music so i like having sections where there's some mystery because it keeps everybody on their toes they have everyone has to be listening to figure out what's going to happen that's that's a huge part of jazz is it not well i think to me that's that is jazz that's what jazz is that's the difference between jazz music and rock you know because to me like anything can be jazz you could even have some kind of music that has like what we call rock beats and it would be jazz once but the difference is, if you go to a U2 show, it's going to be the same all the time. That's mm -hmm. what they do. Or a, even a Bruce Springsteen show, it seems like it's very um, informal, but it's all worked out. That's how basically how rock musicians work, because that's their tradition. You have the song, and you have... But with jazz, we like to have... A, a, the whole idea, to me at least, is that... It's about the moment we have the songs and we have the, the form, but then the idea is we're playing off the audience and each mm -hmm. other. So a different audience creates a different, in a different room, in a different environment, creates a different experience for us. But I also see, I mean, it's a, it's a mixture too, because you obviously work with charts. Oh, yeah. And then I'm sure that there are moments when you're seeing... You know, you're one of the musicians go somewhere and you just tell them to keep going. Yeah. Or when we listen to Henry a lot, too. I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, the band is built around Henry. Right. And the idea is Henry should be able to go wherever he wants to go. And we can, like, go there with him. And then there's these places where we all come together. Right. And then, so there are times when Henry's going off and there's times where we're going off. And then there's times where we're all together. So there's different things that can be happening. There can be we're playing written music and Henry's improvising there can be things where we're all playing together and we know what that is or there's things where we're all improvising 
or there's things where you know the, someone in the band is improvising and Henry's accompanying them. Yeah, and when you're curing them, and I, and I got the impression that certain solos were stretched out, that there were some, yeah. there were times when you just thought, this guy's doing well, so let's go for another uh-huh. number of bars or whatever. Uh-huh. But, and I don't, you know, at that point, nobody else is communicating to Henry that this is going on. Well, he knows, but he doesn't have to. You know, he understands, it's a, it's a musical language. We all speak this language. So you don't need, it's just like, like I said, you don't. Yeah. When you ask me a question, you don't say, "I'm gonna ask you a question," and then you ask the question. You just ask the question. I know what you're saying, but visually, it's just to watch that show. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. It's it's yeah, but you incredible. know, I'm also quite aware of the visuals. And some of the visuals, I, I, you know, a magician doesn't want to reveal all his tricks. Mm-hmm. So I'm not giving you complete answers to everything <laughs> because that would be then would I be telling all my tricks? You know, if I have tricks, like can anybody. We, can we go back a bit? Tell yeah. me how you got into jazz. Um, my parents always had jazz music in the house. It was just kind of part of the... took me to gigs. I remember, not a lot, but I remember going to see Duke Ellington in third grade. And my parents talked about jazz. They liked jazz. And uh, in fourth grade, started playing the trumpet. I liked Louis Armstrong a lot. I thought that was... He was on... He had, I guess, Hello, Dolly! It was a hit when I was in fourth grade. He was on TV a lot. So when they asked for instruments, I said, oh, well... Play trumpet. That guy Louis Armstrong always seems like he's smiling. I said, well, you know, like of all the adults I'd ever seen on TV, Louis Armstrong seemed like the best one. So um, I said, yeah, try the trumpet. Now in fifth grade, we moved to um, back to California. We we were East Coast family. My my parents had moved to the Bay Area in 1969. My father had Navy duty, and uh, he was a doctor in the Navy. So they put him in a naval base in Oakland. So we moved to Oakland and Berkeley. And uh, it was 19, I always tell people, like, you know, 1969, you know, we moved, we're East Coast Jews, we moved to Berkeley, to Oakland, actually, we live in a hotel, and my mom sent me to Black Panther summer camp. <laughs> See? It always gets a laugh. But well. it, but it's true. I mean, basically, uh, we didn't have any money, my mom saw a sign, like, a free summer program, and she sent me off, and it was like, you know, Oakland, Black Panthers, and... That's kind of the way I grew up. It like, you know, everyone talking about PC and this and that. It's like for people of my generation, who grew up where I did, it's just the way the world was. It wasn't seem like a weird thing. It's like Black Panthers were a community group that was helping out. You know, mm-hmm. giving lunches, help giving kids a place to go for the summer, giving people a place to study. So it was just part of our community. Yeah. And and how were you received in that community? Like a kid, okay. just like a second. A second grader walking in from a different town. No different. No different. Okay. Yeah, I grew up like not really aware of differences. The whole funny thing about being from California, I always tell people like, if you were growing up in California, the, in the generation we grew up, it really felt like we weren't black, white, Jewish, Christian. We were just Californians. Mm-hmm. We were like kind of like little special people. We had this really cool environment where it was integration. We knew it was different. But we didn't know how different it was. We knew something cool was going on. Mm-hmm. We didn't realize the rest of the world was like Neanderthals around us. But, you know, I mean, we had, like, everything. Everything that people were doing now, we were doing way back, including, like, you know, integration, yoga, health foods, recycling, environmental awareness, awareness of people with disabilities. So you had ramped uh, sidewalks where people with wheelchairs could go. I mean, all the stuff that was happening in the 70s in Berkeley. It was just very uh, enlightened. People were people were working hard at being enlightened. So what I'm getting at, we, so we went there for two years. We went back to Boston. My parents were like, all right, we're done with the two years in the Navy. Let's go back to the East Coast. We're East Coast Jews. That's what Jews do. You go back to the East Coast. I mean, it was nice to be in California. They get back to the East Coast. They go to Boston. And we look and we go, shoot, we're surrounded with Neanderthals. And we're like, Let's, we got to go back to California. <laughs> because it was literally like, time travel back to like the pre-enlightened era you know it's like you know southeast riding against like you know three black kids being like bust in we were like my parents were like yeah we got to get out of here this is like really backwards so we moved back to california fifth grade and they had just started a jazz program a guy named phil hardiman a guy named dick whittington and spearheaded by dr herb wong who just passed away and it was a jazz program for kids and uh, there were a couple kids who were supremely talented. Uh, one of them was Peter Applebaum, who you heard play the tenor with mm-hmm. us. And the guy was Rodney Franklin, who 
you might remember had like some hit records in 1980 and 81 that were like funk jazz like in the center it was it was a radio hit he had a big radio hit anyway so we were learning to improvise in fifth grade and that was it they just started improvising Peter Alfalm had a band I was in his band we were like playing little gigs at little bars and clubs and at the school so I was actually playing gigs and and then we and, and then Peter was like kind of our gang leader and he was knew a lot about music and had a lot of records and turned us on to stuff and we would go to Keystone Corner and we started hearing music like we started going to see like Ross on Roland Kirk in seventh grade yeah, maybe eighth grade but we you know we were going to clubs here in the the music was really happening around there in San Francisco well right? they had one club that Keystone Corner I mean I miss like that post beatnik Blackhawk and the, all that stuff you know but there was a club called Keystone Corner well there was always the the great hippie stuff that was going right, on. Right. You had the Grateful Dead and Sons of Champlin, Quicksilver Messenger Service, Sly and the Family Stone. Now, was there any influence in that? Like, was there any attraction to that kind of music for you? Sly maybe my biggest influence after Duke Ellington. And you hear a lot of Sly in my music. You don't know you're hearing it. Mm-hmm. But Sly was like my biggest... I mean, I mean, Sly was always in the air when I was a kid. It was like that music was on the radio. It was coming out of cars. It was coming out of my neighbor's house. And uh, that, I think my two greatest influences are Duke Ellington and Sly. So, um, but yeah, but we got really into then the music of that time was, you know, the Art Ensemble, Cecil Taylor. And uh, it's funny talking about blues, though, because I was thinking about the style I play. Like when we were taught to play, basically, we learned to play blues. And that's kind of what I can play. I mean, I learned to play all kinds of stuff, but basically, what I really know how to do is play blues. Well, Tell me about the connection between jazz and blues. I mean, you're a jazz musician, so tell me what blues means to you and, and, and how it influences jazz. Here's the deal. It's a tree, right? And blues are at, like the rhythms of Africa, and the blues are at the roots of that tree. Mm-hmm. So jazz is up in one of the high branches, and the more modern the jazz is, the kind of more complex, it's a higher and higher branch. So you have early jazz, which is very close to the roots of the blues. So... You know, Hot Lips Page and Count Basie, all that Kansas City music, you know, is very much of the blues. They would also be playing what people now call Tim Pen Alley songs. They're playing songs like Pennies from Heaven and, um, you know, whatever you want to say, like a Slow Boat to China, these kind of songs. Mm-hmm. But they were putting that bluesy feel on them. And then in Harlem, a lot of that music was like, also blues but kind of in a faster dance tempo and mixed with like the new you know the new orleans is a very specific branch too so that's also in that tree on on, you know a different branch a different branch but really at the bot it's like kind of like blues and and the african rhythms are at the bot so i always like i played for years with levon helm now, Levon did not want to hear anything from the higher branches. That was not his thing. He wanted it all to be about the blues. And so it was always about melody and rhythm and blues. That's all he wanted to hear. But I always said, like, if you're a jazz musician, of course you can play the blues because that's your root in your root. But if you're a blues musician, and you understand it, but if you're a blues musician, you might not necessarily be feeling some of those higher branches because it's like a different you're down there I don't mean down and I don't mean down as in lesser I just mean it's an it's built upon the blues like the, all the jazz is built upon the blues could you be a decent jazz musician without going through the blues I guess I don't know I'm sure I don't know if anyone would want to hear you so you're a young kid into jazz. Like, yeah. you're right into jazz yeah, more yeah. than anything. Yeah. Well, it's so funny because when, when the guy from the Eagles died, uh, Glenn Frey, everyone's talking about this song um, that Jackson Brown and him wrote called... Take it easy. So I said, let me Google it. And I grew up in California. And I said, man, I, I don't even remember hearing this song. It was like, And I put it on Facebook. And a million people like, how could you have heard this song? And then they said, and then I put on the, and then I Googled the Jackson Brown version. I said, oh, that one I remember. I remember hearing that one. But that Eagles thing, I swear, I said, that, that just does not ring a bell with me. I think I really lived in a bubble. In the jazz bubble. <laughs> jazz, uh, jazz and black music. You know, I listened, because I did listen to, at, for dances, at parties we listened to 
Ohio Players, Parliament Funkadelic, um, Commodores, Stylistics, um, you know, those kind of bands. So what age are you at now? So you start going to parties in seventh grade, right. eighth grade. So in eighth grade, I started to listen to that other stuff. And are you thinking I'm going to be a musician? Yeah. I mean, I always tell people, like, it's kind of funny cause being, like, not a young guy anymore, kind of like, you know, 54, like, you know, you're that other part of your life. And um, I said, you know, when I started, it didn't seem like very unrealistic to be a musician. I mean, I knew, it's like, it was a, it seemed like a decent job. I was getting paid already in high school. I would go on gigs. I could play gigs with grown-ups. You know, I, I, I could, I was a good enough musician in, in high school that I could go to a big band gig with, with adults <coughs> and read a book, read, you know, I couldn't play the lead trumpet. I could play, probably couldn't even play second trumpet, but I could play third or fourth trumpet, like show up, play like, Fireman's Ball, dance, or whatever, and play big band music. I knew how to do that. And so... So it seemed, it seemed realistic. It's like, well, I'm already making money. I know how to do this. It's like, why shouldn't I play, be a musician? To be hip and good in jazz, is it just a matter of practicing, 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 playing, whatever? I think you have to have a, a natural feeling. and somewhat. It's not just practice. Nothing's just practicing, or everyone could do it. I mean, you have to practice, get good at your instrument, and learn... But I think that, to me, I mean, see, jazz is such a funny word. I mean, my version of jazz is not other people's version of jazz. My version of jazz is I want people to feel something. Like, that's the most important thing to me. There's other jazz musicians who that's not the most important thing to them. Right. I mean, even if I do a little thing where I'm just playing some tunes like A-Train in a mellow tone, it's about the audience. And I play a little thing in my little town. I live in a little town like 30 miles away, and they have a little community concert for for the holidays I played like I played some Jewish I played I've also made these Jewish records too so I played some Jewish music I mean they're my records but you know, they're my rhythms but Jewish melodies and stuff and I played like just whatever I think A Train or in a melatonin I forget which one I think it was A Train and this woman came up to me with her husband oh my husband always wants me to go out and hear jazz and I, I said no I, I didn't realize how much fun it was because it's really and I said well I hate to tell you but it's not always going to be this fun because <laughs> It's true. I mean, some people's jazz is just not that inviting to the audience. To me, it's very important that the audience, you let them in. And then you can take them out, but you have to, have, you know, you got to not leave them out in the middle of nowhere. They're not going to have a good time. When I saw your, your performance with Henry and your Hot Nine band, it was definitely in, inclusive. But you also known... I, I think you mentioned it before, like some of the jazz stuff that you play is way out there. Yeah, but it's still inclusive. My most out stuff is still very rhythmic, very melodic. It's just like the notes we play might not be like the blues notes and uh, those kind of notes right. you'd hear in blues music and New Orleans music. We might be playing notes that just a little more from outer space. So how did you get to that point? Like what? I just like that. I like that sound. I like being in outer space. <laughs> From the very beginning, is that the way? Oh, yeah, because you went and hear Ross on Roland Kirk or the Art Ensemble or Cecil Taylor. I mean, not the very beginning, but it's all about language. It's like the more words you know, like when you're a little kid, again, I don't know, you might know a, f a few words and you add a lot of words, and uh, but you wouldn't always want to use all the words. But it's nice to know all the words. So in some music I play, I use certain words and some music I play, I use a different language. But they all use, all the languages use the same letters. Like, the letters that spell um, periphery are also in the, you know, in uh, par mm -hmm. or rap, right? Mm -hmm. So, there's no, it's not any new letters really, they just use the same letters. You might stretch them out and have more syllables and, that, and have a harder to pronounce or more abstract meaning but it's all a certain amount of letters so there's building blocks Built music has building blocks and the more you've listened to and you love you have to love music to play it I always tell people like jazz musicians who want to like play some rock stuff with me I said well you have to love rock to play it right I, well I know I can play this stuff well I know you can play it because it's a simpler language but if you don't love it, then you can't play it. I know you have 
you understand what it is intellectually. To really play rock music, you have to love rock music. Otherwise, it's not going to make any sense. I mean, music is like an expression of love to me. That's really what it is. And it's a way to... And really, our job is to transform an audience. And my job is not to play something good. My job is to make the audience feel something. So is it difficult to stretch and go to beyond the norm places with some of your jazz, but make that still accessible? No, not for me it isn't. For some people it might be. Not for me. I mean, does it naturally come to you yeah. that way? Yeah, That's I do it like that. I always I used to get upset with people whose music didn't sound like mine. I said, oh, man, I don't like the way that guy plays. But I realized he's playing the way he or she feels. To them, that is honesty. Like, some people's music doesn't have a lot of rhythmic variations or a lot of um, um, variations in volume. You go here, some people, it's just like the same kind of rhythm, the same kind of volume, mm -hmm. and the same kind of texture from beginning to end. Like a bunch of guys, ba ba da ba da ba da ba da ba da ba da And I used to say, oh man, I hate that. And I hate that because it's not very good to me. But I realized that person, that's the music they love. That's why they're playing that. But it's not for me. I think every musician has to honestly play what they love. You know, and if you can get that love, a feeling of love out, hopefully the audience is going to feel that. It took me a while to realize that everyone is a different honest feeling of what that is, what they love most. But you also, you do a lot of, you've done a lot of film work, yeah. or soundtrack work, yeah. or arrangement in, in yeah. film. Yeah. And I I'm, I might be wrong, but in the examples that I've seen, they're a little more accessible. They're, they're probably not as way out there. Well, yeah, they're serving a purpose. Right. So is that a different, I mean, obviously it's a different discipline, but... When you get hired to do that, is, is, is the approach any different? No. Well, like I said, it's all the same building blocks. You're just using notes, and you're trying to get things. And the reality is I haven't composed that much film music. I've arranged a lot of film music. Can you talk to what that specifically means? So for years, I worked with a guy named John Lurie. We were in band, I was in his band, The Lounge Lizards. And John was a composer. But he didn't have a lot of musical training. But he would like say, okay, I want this to sound like this. And I'd say, okay, well, that means what you're hearing is this kind of, you know, drum rhythm. And I would write the rhythm. Is that right? Oh, that quite. I mean, like this. And I'd say, okay. And then this kind of bass thing. And maybe have the guitar do this. And he'd either say yes or no. So I was the person responsible for taking his abstract view sound in his head and making it, manifesting it so it's something physical written down that other musicians could very easily translate. Mm -hmm. Before he had met me, he had done scores where he would just go into the studio and try to explain to people with a very basic chart what he wanted. But I was able to say, well, let's get really specific about this and, you know, and hopefully make it a little easier and add some things that made it clear. And I just kind of had a real uh, gift for being able to translate those things. And where does that come from? Is that schooling know. or is that just no. in, intuition? Innate, innate. Yeah, I I didn't really study arranging. I mean, I took like one arranging class in school, but, you know, I just arranged what I hear. I could hear things in my head and kind of visualize them and identify what they were very easily. I don't know. And easily I, and have different Clarity. instruments. And be able to really, you know, be able to say, oh, I think you want this and this sound and this and this sound and... He would like, let's say he would just have a melody and say, but I want to have like a Duke Ellington feeling. And I'd say, okay, what if we make these chords kind of like this and you can have these voicings like this, you know, they need to say yes or no, or this is going to be a funky thing, but maybe you only had like one part of the melody. And so I say, well, what if like you have the bass doing this or, or he'd have the bass part. And I'd say, well, what if you have the horns doing this, you know, kind of complete it, you know, but it was his, he was a composer. He came up with all the themes. Mm -hmm. It was my idea job to help those themes kind of become full pieces which he would have eventually got to anyway but my idea was like you know old school music style you just write it all down hand the parts out it's all there can you just picture everything in your mind yeah as an arranger yeah i can it's weird like i can hear a piece of music and i can usually just see the score going by as i'm hearing it like all the parts i don't have perfect pitch i don't know exactly what the notes are but i know what instrument's doing it, 
where they are in their register, how they're related to the other instruments. Some people have perfect pitch. They know exactly what note is. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure Henry does. Yeah, I think he said he does, yeah. You know, so he knows exactly... I don't know exactly what note it is, but I know what the form is. Like, I can hear a piece of music, and I can basically write out what the whole thing is. Maybe by all the wrong notes, but everything like the right shapes, who's doing what, when it changes. It's just a gift I have. I'm able to do it. And it's like, it's being able like to manifest an abstract into a solid, basically. Like, it almost, what you just described there is, is almost what I imagined was going on stage when you were playing at Kerner Hall a few yeah. weeks ago, is that you, you would just point to somebody for their solo, and then you'd kind of give them signals as to where you wanted them to go. Right. And it was just like visually, it was like he's creating right here. I don't know if if the person, the sax player, or whoever is doing exactly what you wanted them to, but there was just some sense of you giving them direction during this improv, going to a different place. Right. As if you were arranging on the go. Yeah, it is. It's arranging on the go. Like, that's that's what I found so mesmerizing. Well, you know, I'm not the only person who have ever done it. I mean, no. the... the there's a guy named Butch Morris who passed away who would do entire concerts that were just improvised and he would point, he called it conduction. And it was all, he had a series of cues he would give people. And, um, you know, he had these series of cues and he could create a whole piece of music, even with an orchestra, completely out of nothing, out of the ether. You know, we're not doing that. We have these forms of these songs. We know how it's going to end and how it's going to start. But a lot of times in the beginning, you know, we want to be able to like, you know, when I was playing Levon, we would never do anything like that. Levon's whole thing was like, play the song, get through it, you know, boom, boom, boom. That's the rock and roll ethos. Can you tell me how that relationship began? Oh, with Levon? Yeah. Uh, Eric Lawrence, who was playing baritone sax in, in, in my band, he uh, said, you know, Levon is uh, doing these shows up at his barn. It was before you know, he had a, a band again. He was just coming off the throat cancer he hadn't been singing he had had a lot of money issues and on Saturdays you know I, there's not a lot of money but if you ever have a free Saturday you should come and do it it's about 10, 11 years ago now so on Saturdays I would usually do like weddings pay pretty good you know that kind of help keep my family together you know mm-hmm. as a musician you're a freelancer you work every little $300, $400 gig you know piece them together that's a career and uh I said, well, yeah, if I ever have a free one, I'll come up, you know, because my whole thing was I needed that money to feed the family. So one night, one Saturday, I had a free Saturday, and I said, oh, man, this, you know, why don't you come up to Levon? So came up, get, got there early. They said, uh, well, here's some songs Levon likes. Maybe we'll come out and do a rehearsal. He never came down for a rehearsal. They, they, they had a little, uh, you know, CD box, you know, I was listening to some of the songs, wrote some quick horn charts out, some of these songs. I told Eric, I said, look, one thing I hate, and this happens a lot on weddings, is like someone comes up with like a bastardization of like some horn part from an R&B tune, and then the other person doesn't quite know it, and they're trying to play it together, and the first person doesn't even know it, and the second person doesn't know it even less. It just sounds horrible, you know? It just sounds so bad. I said, look, do not play what I'm playing. I don't want... I mean, I know you can cut... Well, I could do it. I said, no. Now, here's the deal. I'll play my part, and you play your part. It'll sound much better than you trying to play my part and not doing it correctly, mm-hmm. since we don't know what it is. So I'll play the trumpet part, and you play the saxophone part. And people usually don't do those kind of things, but this is kind of like how my mind likes to work. We played the first set. We sat in a few songs with the band Ola Bell, and then Levon came out. I'd never met him. He just sat behind the drums, looked at me, I looked at him, and we just started playing. And it sounded perfect. Like, if you play like that, there aren't any wrong notes. If you're listening, if I'm reacting, if I'm listening to Levon's drumming, and I'm reacting with, like, what I think a trumpet should do, and the saxophone's reacting what I think the saxophone should do, and we're both reacting honestly to the music, it's going to sound like a big man. He was like, man, how'd you guys do that? You know, or actually, his daughter said to Levon, she said, "How do those guys do it?" And Levon said, "Cause that's what they do." <laughs> and that was it. I was just in this band, like no one ever asked me. It just I kept getting the call after that first time. It was like I was in the band, and slowly this thing built. He started to sing again. And he had sung some backgrounds. He suddenly started to sing lead. Then he had never wanted to do tunes by the band, you know, because the whole thing with him and Robbie. 
And it was like suddenly people were coming and spending money. And Jimmy Vivino at the time was leading the band. And Jimmy said, you know, Lee, people are spending 75 bucks. You gotta sing, gotta sing the weight at least, you know. Right. So we started like bringing in band tunes. And Larry Campbell came and he got off the road with Dylan. Then we had two band leaders, Jimmy and Larry. It got, you know, bigger and better. Larry had started to do some stuff with um, Phil Lesh. He got Phil was like, "Hey, why don't you bring the band out and open for us?" And that was our first road stuff. You know, Lee was really nervous about it. Started going on the road. Then he gets the first record out, gets a Grammy, to a giant show at the Beacon Theater. Like it's Lee big return. He's singing. He's got a full band. With the second record out, second record gets a Grammy. Third record out, third record gets a Grammy. You know, and it just became this like they said the legendary thing that's supposed to never happen in America, like the they call it the third the third chapter mm-hmm. was that the you know the great I guess it's the Great Gatsby, right? It's something about mm-hmm. getting the third chapter. He got the third chapter. Like he was a famous guy from the band. He was a guy who kind of like had all these like was acting, but had all these financial troubles, and like no one really cared about him anymore. And then he fucking ended like you know when he died, it was like you know on the cover of CNN, you know and you know what was he like as a person oh. did you get to know him oh yeah really well I spent eight years with him and it was like there was no manager there was no his whole thing was he hated business people music business people so there were no business people around yeah. us it was just family like him and his daughter and Larry and Larry's wife and his his manager was this woman Barbara who worked at the sheriff's office and just wanted to help out and so he was just the greatest guy very we never rehearsed he never went to a sound check. Levon's whole thing was he only played drums in, in front of people. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. If there was an audience, there wasn't a reason to play drums. He never even came to a sound check. Even if he was like in the bus, you know, five steps away. Musically, it's different from what you usually play, but is it still the music that you love? Oh, yeah, but not that different. It's blues. I mean, it was a blues. It was yeah. like a, and we did some, we did like a Bessie Smith tune and, I would even do a, sometimes as instrumental, we play a Jelly Roll tune that I like to play. I mean, it was really like American music. You know, so we'd do blues, music by the band, and then like like a Bessie Smith or like uh, some really old blues. Some, Larry liked to play, um, God, what was that? Uh, oh God, it's been a while. But you know, well, there's one of these old blues tunes that like kind of like a lot of the, kind of white rock bands like Yorma and those guys used to play, yeah. you know, or The Dead used to play it too, you know. And uh, Deep Ellum, Deep Ellum Blues. Okay, yeah. You know, that one I'm sure. Do, 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 You know, and then Levon, you know, and then in the middle they would do this kind of like real country music, like the Appalachian stuff from when Levon was a kid. That stuff was amazing. I, we didn't really have horns on that, but I just loved listening to it. So... If we go back to that kid who wanted to play jazz, right? Did you know what that what that meant to be a full time musician? Well, yeah. I mean, my I had teachers, and I was around a lot of older musicians. I saw what they did, and my you know my trumpet teacher in San Francisco owned a building. He had been a freelance musician. He was a jazz musician, but he made made it clear like if you go to jobs, you can get paid. And then my trumpet teacher in New York, Jimmy Maxwell, also owned a house, and he had been uh, NBC staff trumpet player for whatever twenty years. I ended up owning a house. I mean, I was really lucky that I started. I had this little five-year period of of doing these movies, <clears throat> so I could get enough finances to do that. But you know, I always tell people I was never enamored of the starving artist scenario. That was never like my goal was never to be a starving. I know people who want to be starving artists. Like, that's their thing. Really? Oh, yeah. They just think it's romantic. My whole thing is you have to be a smart business person as well. You have to be aware of your, you know. And uh, and so I think you have to realize it's a job and you need to get paid for it. Right. You know. And uh, that's the nice thing about having this band with Henry because it's the kind of band people are happy to pay for. You know, it's nice to have music that, I mean... When I was doing stuff for TV and movies, that was great because it has to be something... I mean, we live in a capitalistic system. I mean, Canada's you have a semi-socialist. In Europe, semi-socialist. But in America, 
you know, it's really like you gotta make some money. So how do you do it? So how's the music relate to money? Music usually relates to money in either it's with movies or advertisements, some sort of licensing, or having a band like we have with Henry where people just enjoy it and they're really willing to say, man, this is good music where it's it's on a heavy intellectual level but and it's really well crafted but it makes us feel great. And I don't understand how, I mean, that show was pretty well sold out. Yeah. And I don't know if the band as an entity is well known. It's relatively new. It's a new band. Henry's well known. I, in a certain world, am well known amongst jazz aficionados, like of a certain style. But when you play these places like the Kerner, you're playing places that have subscriptions. Mm -hmm. And so people look at the, they look who's coming and they say, oh, I want to come to that concert. You know, so a lot of that, we have to play places like that. As we've been playing these great places like Kennedy Center, Flynn Theater, you know, we're coming up to do some jazz at Lincoln Center, we're going to Royce Hall in LA. So that's who can afford, in America, that's how you can afford, you need to play it where there's arts presenters, you know. But is it is it difficult to be a jazz musician in this day and age? Of course it is. But see, unfortunately, in this day and age, it's difficult to like work for Kodak. In fact, it's impossible. They closed. Yeah, right? True. Yes. I mean, it's a different world now. So if it, if you're doing something hard, you might as well do something you love. And you still love it. Was there ever a point where you questioned it or thought, "I want to do something else"? No. Yep. I presume that you probably had some tough times. Oh yeah, I still have some tough times. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I mean, See, yeah, it's kind of weird because when you when, when you're up on stage and you're it's you're playing this sold out crowd right. and they were just loving you, right? It's hard to imagine that that doesn't go on all the time, but I guess it doesn't. It doesn't. Go on. It doesn't. Well, that's, I'm in a really odd part of my career where, so I used to work for a bunch of people who aren't alive anymore, and they was like high level gigs. You know, mm-hmm. I worked with Lou Levon for so long with Lou Reed. You know, I worked for you know not a lot, but I worked did a couple movies with Robert Altman. You know, like very high level people. These people aren't on the planet anymore. And there's a younger group of people who might not either be aware of me or the way I make music doesn't relate to them as much as younger people. So I don't do as much of those kind of jobs. Basically, the jobs I do are my own jobs. And uh, so there's not a lot of them. There's just not. I mean, how many. Kerner Halls are there. Mm-hmm. How many Jazz Lincoln Centers are there? It's not a lot. So, you know, but on the other hand, every gig I do, or most gigs I do, are at this very high level now. But, you know, I've never, it was, I'm just one of these guys, like, I never really had great man, I've never really personally had a manager. I mean, there's small periods of my life. And there's certain people who in their careers, Almost everyone who has a really, really successful career, I'd say 90 plus percent of them, have had great managers from early on. And I've always been kind of a laid back guy, and I just kind of never dealt with that. You know, I was like, yeah, it's just easier to do stuff myself and keep life simple. Mm-hmm. But in the long run, you know, it, it kind of hampers your ability to exist at a higher in this higher level of the business. But I wonder, I mean, it's just when you look at your bio and you look at all the arrangements they've done for documentaries and for movies and stuff, and you've worked with Levon, obviously you're really good at what you do. And these opportunities have happened for a reason. Yeah. You know, and I don't know how they happen. Like, the, the Levon thing just seemed to be... Almost everything happens because you have your eyes open in my life. Like, it's not a lot. Like I said, I've never been a very... Even though I've been very business, try to be smart about business. I've never been business oriented. I kind of just do what's in front of me. Mm-hmm. That's how I've led my life. My whole thing was, you know, I'm kind of from the hippie generation. Like, you know, I don't want to stab anyone in the back. I don't want to take anyone's gig. I don't want to be mean to anybody. Right. I just want to like, you know, play music. It's not an easy career. I mean, cause I don't have, I always laugh. I was tell like, look, I'm 54 years old, raised two kids, you know, I never had a job. Well, <laughs> but I worked more than anyone you know. You know, I mean, and there was a period, of course, and musicians. You know, it's it's interesting because people talk about this idea of like 
middle-aged slump. And I figured, well, it's never going to happen to someone like me because I'm like a, I'm not someone who was ever on a major label. I'm all like do-it-yourself. But there is not a slump because the reality is I'm playing bigger gigs than I've ever played now. Mm-hmm. Like in a, Because I was always like working for other people and my own things were always very do-it-yourself, smaller things. But there's just less work right now. And again, I'm not complaining about it. I'm you just asking me about this stuff, and I would. I'm happy that the work I do is the work I really love now. It's like when I play with the Hot Nine. This is like the best gigs you can get in the world, basically. Until unless you're like, whatever, Herbie Hancock, right? And so, how do you spread that word? Like, how do you get it? Because obviously, you deliver, and obviously, the crowds love you when they see you. Yeah. So it's just a matter of making sure you get out there and play more. Right. And we have a man we have management for that band. I mean, Henry and I when we first talked about getting this band together, I said, Henry, you know, I've been self managed basically my whole career, but this project we have to have a manager. There's no way. It's like ten because the level you know I mean for a long time I just worked and be like literally just like a you know, a promoter would call email me or call me up, like, Well, you know, what do you want to do? And I'd say, Oh, okay, uh, do you have this much money? Oh, no. Okay, I, that much money? Okay, I'll do it. Right. Or I can't do it. But usually because it's just me, I'd say, oh, yeah, that's how much money you have? Like, I'm not like some like shark business person. I'd be like, okay, I'll figure out a way to make it work. And I would. And I did like a lot of things that like other people couldn't manage to do just by saying, yeah, I'll figure out a way to make that work. Like, you know. Well, there's always that if you don't do it, you don't get anything. Right. Right? Yeah. And it's always... Uh, a struggle to figure yeah. out which it's way. Like I've taken bands from Mexico a lot, Russia. Yeah, I'll figure out a way to make it work. Yeah. And how do you find when you play jazz to all over the world, it's accepted, and and, and you know it could be any music, but music seems to transcend languages and culture and whatever. Right. Like, what, what's it like for you to play? To Russians who have no idea who you are and well, right my, my experiences in Russia were both really odd. One was like I had such a like I played in Russia twice. Both times I was there for two days. First time I played at Royal Conservatory, I mean Moscow Conservatory Hall, which is like the Carnegie Hall of of, of Russia, and it was this big. I wasn't the leader. It was a big band concert, Duke Ellington's music, with some special guest Russian singers singing some traditional Russian songs in a jazzy style. So it was like celebrating Duke Ellington in Russia. And the second time, and literally we got off the plane, they said, we have to go to a TV station right now and do a TV broadcast. And it was like walking into like some 50s, like bizarre Soviet, because it was interesting because I was a side man and it was a big man. And I had, most of these guys had traveled a lot. I had, so like the first thing I did was like exchange, exchange money. So I had money in my pocket and these guys were all starving and like, I went right, I found there was a commissary, and I was like, all right, let me get, you know, let me get a water and a beer and some chocolate and some nuts. And the guy's like, how do you do that? And I'm like, because, man, I've been on the road a long time. I like, get some money and get some food. Like, second time I went to Russia, we played at the Kremlin for a huge ceremony called the Jewish Man of the Year Ceremony. It was right before the global meltdown. So there was so much money in Russia right then, the oligarch beginning of the whole, all the oil money. And they had brought out they brought out a different nine-piece band I had to play one ten-minute song. They flew us all to Russia <laughs> to play wow. one ten-minute song for a ceremony. So I don't have like the most clear picture of what it's like to play in Russia. But obviously the music communicates. Yeah. Music communicates to people. Rhythm communicates to people. I have a philosophy of music that I'm not going to give it all away. But the first two building I won't get this four building blocks of music. You have to come study with me if you want all four. Okay. But the first two are sound. That's the first building block of music. Second is rhythm. Because the first thing people hear is sound. And the second thing they do is they feel the rhythm. So if you have a good sound and good rhythm, people automatically, you already won. And you know. the other two we won't know about. Oh, <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to give them away. It's like, you know, got to buy the book. Tell me about Sex Mob. 20 years, this band, and this band started just kind of like on a whim to, um, I played an instrument called the slide trumpet as well as the regular trumpet. And I just started, I've been playing for a long time. Can you explain what the slide Instead of having um, 
valves like a trumpet does. It has a slide like a trombone does. Which is not that common. No, but they've been around forever. There's a very famous picture of Louis Armstrong playing one that you'll often see in little history books or books about Louis Armstrong. They've been around since the turn of the century. Um, they were kind of used as, uh, best I can tell, because I talked to a bunch of historians going, well, okay, it's... Is pictures of slide trumpets. I have slide trumpets going back from the 20s. I have some from the 30s, from the 40s. They obviously manufactured them. The best we can figure out is that they were made as novelty instruments because they were made to look like a small trombone. Like, oh, yeah, so if the circus was in town, they'd pull it out, play a little funny song on it. I kind of think, because I was like, I told talked to a brass historian, I was like, why'd they make all these slide trumpets if there's no slide trumpet music? I mean, it's not like they, they had to build them for a reason. It's not like, you know, there's a lot of them. Not a lot, but there's, right. you know, they made them. They were made. They were manufactured. So why were they manufactured if they're not on records? But it's an, it is, especially my, the one I use, because I have a bunch of them. I have one that's actually more like, sounds like a regular trumpet. It's a very, I always tell people, this instrument I have wasn't built to like um, blend with other instruments. It's just what it is. So like a clarinet is a clarinet. They they worked on it for a long time. A saxophone is a saxophone. They did a lot of experimentation. A trumpet. And the whole idea was a saxophone could blend with a trumpet. Trumpet could blend with a violin. A flute could blend with a sax. A flute could blend with a trumpet. So all these instruments were built so they could blend with each other. Mm-hmm. Slide trumpet was just built. <laughs> so it's just kind of its own beast. You know, it's kind of like the X Men. It's like you know, it's like looks like regular, but it's not really regular. So is that the focus of... Sex Mom. Yeah, so the idea was, I said, what if I put together a band and I didn't bring a regular trumpet, I only played a slide trumpet. So I could figure out, like, well, well what can this instrument do? And it forced me because that was the idea. That was like there was no premise other than I'm going to start a band where I only play slide trumpet. And we had this uh, every Thursday night gig at the Knitting Factory. So it was 20 years ago, 1990, late 94, early 95. And uh, like music, it was kind of groovy, kind of modern, avant-garde with beats and this and that. And then uh, I just started getting into film music. And so I brought, I said, oh man, it was a cool little James Bond cue. I've been listening to a lot of records, like these, you know, um, score records, records of the scores. You go, you know, mm-hmm. came from these record store. And it was a little cue I really liked. I said, let me write this cue out. We'll play it because it was kind of, very vampy and groovy and in the middle it went to the James Bond theme but after kind of this whole it was called Bond with Bongos and it had this very Latin kind of feeling at the beginning and the end I said this is kind of cool so we're doing it and then we're at the bar this gig went from 11 to 2 so I was you know after midnight everyone's been drinking and smoking and feeling good and uh, man we're doing the little vamp and suddenly like that and the crowd fucking, excuse my language, the crowd erupts. Now, nothing we have played really changed. Like, we're playing the same sounds and the same instruments. What's changed? We're playing the same rhythms. The melody's changed. We're playing a melody that everyone recognized. And it was one of these eureka moments. Like, ah, you play, you can play the exact same rhythm and the exact same sound. But you play a melody that everybody knows, and it's a huge payoff to them. So I started building a band around that idea, like let's keep playing melodies people know because they're they're gonna we're gonna draw them in. So whatever we're gonna play a Prince tune and an Abba tune and a Rolling Stones tune, and then it developed them. Eventually, we did like a whole record of just James Bond themes. The last record was all Fellini music. You know, the idea, like, here's a band that can take any kind of music, but we have our own rhythms and our own sound. And I, there's also been three records of all original music, too. Our new records have all original music. But people really enjoy, I've noticed people really like to hear a melody they know. Mm-hmm. And that's what Sex Mom is about. And this band's been touring for a while. 20 years. Same four guys. <clears throat> and how active are you, are you at this point? You know, basically we do one or two European tours a year, some concerts, some U.S. tour. I don't think we've done a U.S. For a while we toured U.S. a lot. Eventually I was like, you know what? We're ne- 
it's like it's not like it used to be like oh we're gonna be like really famous and successful and make a lot of money and stuff then you gotta be like well that's probably not gonna happen but we look it's a great band so when there's money we'll do it when there's not we'll do other things was fame ever a motivation in your career well yeah because you want to get paid no but not just getting paid but fame like something beyond well the idea of the good thing about being famous is that then you can charge more money and then you can get paid mm -hmm. but I think being famous for being famous for sake was never being famous so I could pay the bills is a good thing yes for sure that's why I'm doing this podcast because I think you're going to push me over the edge <laughs> you don't know about my podcast <laughs> but I do appreciate you taking the time to do this but um, no I mean that's you know, the idea is if people know who you are, more chance of people going to come and hear you play. You know? So, do you have a philosophy? Is that would that be one of them? Of, of, I have a lot of philosophy. I have a whole book of philosophy that seriously that, that will come out. Yeah, I have a very well thought out philosophy. But, uh, but like, if I was a, a young musician coming to you and saying, yeah, "Give me some advice," what would you say? Play with your friends. Play with your friends. Don't worry. Like I said, I came at the tail end of the music industry. And it used to be you played with older people. You got on as a sub. There was so much work. God, there was too much work. So if you had someone who was like your benefactor, he'd say, oh, I can't make this gig. Make Friday for me. Or listen, can you... I have a, uh, a recording, but then I got another recording. So you can come and make the last 15 minutes for my recording. Or can you make the first 15 minutes as I was recording because I'm going to be late. That's what it was like in New York. There was that much work. Mm -hmm. And that's how you would get work. I mean, it was how I got work at the beginning. Call up drum player. He's like, oh, I double booked for Saturday. Which one do I want to do? You know, like I got to play with Brother Jack McDuff a few times. Great organ player. He played up in Harlem, like legendary. And to be honest, it was um, Chris Albert. Was the, it was his gig. And then they, the next guy they call was Chris Bodie. This is before Chris became famous. But he was just a trumpet player back then. And after that, I think after that, I would go to a guy named Jim O'Connor. And then Jim would call me. I was like fourth, fifth down the line. But that's how it would work, you know? And then, well, can you do it? No. Can you do it? No, no. Then Jim would say, I can do it. And then Jim would be like, oh, well, I got a wedding that pays $200 more. Will you do it? And I said, oh, yeah. That's how you would work. But I started hanging out with my friends. And so you also like hang out, people play your own instrument. So, but there's not that much work anymore. So it's better if, you, like, if you're a trumpet player and you have a friend who's a drummer a friend who's a keyboard player and a friend who's a composer and maybe a friend who's a visual artist and a friend who's a playwright and a friend who's a poet that's who you should be hanging with and you guys come up with each other and when your friend who's a composer finally gets like a little score writing for a documentary he calls you up and says oh man I got my first score come and play and you want to write a song and your friend's a poet you say hey can you you got some words and you have a friend who's a visual artist and he says man, I have an opening at a gallery. Do you want to like play at the opening? You have a friend who's a choreographer. And they're like, oh. So you build your own community. Mm -hmm. And I think I was early, like, all those guys on stage in the Hot Nine, some go back 40 years with me. Peter Alphabon and I have been playing together for 40 years. The clarinet player and I have been playing together over 30 years. The bass player and the trombone player go about 25 years. So, you know, that's long community we all came up together so so not really knowing much about the jazz scene and the jazz world in, in the United States what is it like what's the state of the jazz industry right now well there is no industry unless what you make of it I mean there's no no one buys records I mean we, we were very lucky to put a record out on Impulse not lucky Impulse was lucky to have us mm -hmm. but it was good it was good timing on our part because they just started the label again and they had a budget. But basically, but there's a lot of people that play jazz and a lot of schools that put out young jazz musicians. So there's a lot of energy and there's a lot of reinvention right now. And then, of course, there's Jazz and Lincoln Center, but that's like kind of its own very specific thing. And, and there's jazz festivals throughout the country, right? Or yeah, but it? a lot of jazz festivals don't have any jazz on them. I mean, some do. I'm not saying, but there's a lot of things that are called jazz festivals, and it's, you know, yeah. whatever. It's R&B music, and you know, and um, then clubs. Is there an infrastructure across? No, no. no so it's either New York or no, LA or LA doesn't really have any clubs. That's all. LA barely has any live music. 
they just started a, a, it's a club called the Blue Whale which people like I kind of like built online almost like what we had in New York downtown scene it's like very low key non-corporate and there's been a lot of energy a lot of young people come to here there so when I was in New York when I was like kind of first starting as a leader we had the knitting factory and we had tonic we had two places that were very non-corporate run by people my age so young people felt comfortable there and it wasn't really expensive the thing about going to hear jazz like the unfortunate thing is that it's expensive so if you go like the village vanguard it's like i think 25 dollars to get in maybe 30 and then you have to buy you know maybe first drink that includes the first drink maybe but let's say you bring a date and people play for an hour you've just spent 60 dollars minimum for an hour's worth of music not everyone has that especially young people now you go to a place like the Jazz Standard, which is, you know, you sit down and you have some food as well as play a gig. Two people could spend $100 for easily. Mm-hmm. Easily spend $100 for here an hour's worth of music and eat dinner. But it means you have to have that kind of disposable income. Not everyone in America has that kind of income. So jazz has become music for people with disposable income when we were playing places like the knitting factory and tonic you could just be a young person you know it was cheap to get in buy some rolling rocks or cheap beers and it wasn't that expensive and it wasn't like you were it wasn't like oh after an hour you left you were there all night so it was all night experience so i think that's one of the interesting things about you know going to hear jazz you know so but you're still passionate with your music yeah I, I love music. And then, what are you working on now? Well, I'm all uh, the new Henry Butler. We're trying to, you know, get a new record out with Henry. I'm always writing new arrangements for that project. So, me a new Sex Mob record. I'm going to record in two weeks of all original music, putting that together. I have a new project. I'm going to be doing first concerts at the end of March, and uh, I'm going to record it after that. It's trumpet with three guitars, and it's very much like a like campfire music but at the highest level like very unscripted but three of the greatest guitar players in the world from different styles Dave Tronzo a slide guitar player Larry Campbell from Levon's band and every other band in the world Bob Dylan and the Grateful Dead and whatever he plays with everybody and he's a big producer and then Steve Cardenas who's one of the greatest jazz guitar players alive and the idea is five original songs and five songs that mean a lot to me from composers I love. So the idea is a Monk tune, an Ellington tune, a band tune, a Grateful Dead tune, an Alan Toussaint tune, and then five originals. And the idea is to set it up like a campfire, just got the guitars and instead of a voice, it's the trumpet playing the melody. And that's uh, something I've been dreaming about for a long time, so just had to manifest it. There's, and none of this stuff has any labels behind it or anything. Uh, Sex Mom record, I think I'm just going to print it up myself. I actually could make more money if I just print it out myself and mm-hmm. sell it at gigs. Well, the world's changed. What's that? The world has changed. Yeah. You know, there's no record stores. Yeah. People are like, you want it? And you can have it up on Bandcamp and have digital copies. I'm so funny that I'm like, I don't even know if I want digital copies available. I almost feel like if you want this record, come to my gig and buy it from me. You know? Well, I mean, I agree with that because I personally would rather have the physical copy but I think it's always good to make it available because somebody in Japan might want to hear it you know and if they don't if you don't play there then that kind of yeah they could write me and I could send them a copy <laughs> the thing is once it's digital then it's like all out there like you know I guess I guess eventually someone might buy the record and put it up on the internet but that's a lot more work than if it's on the internet someone downloads it and suddenly it's up there for free everywhere yeah would you put it on Spotify no, oh, nothing. I never Spotify. I don't own Spotify, and I would never put anything on Spotify. Spot, putting something on Spotify is like basically like cutting off your your leg at your knee and then just letting it bleed out. Literally, it's like it's just the end of. It's really helping destroy the music business. Mm-hmm. I agree. You know, you know, it's like basically, yeah. It's it's you know, there's a lot of bad things about what's happening in the, in the, in the music industry and that to me that's like the worst one of the worst the idea of music isn't worth anything mm-hmm. you know can you imagine like you know there, if there's a Spotify for plumbing like uh, you 
spent five dollars a month and like the plumber anytime you need a plumber you just call the guy up or or spotify for like a bar like you give the bar like 15 bucks whenever you're thirsty it's like yeah let me get a little bit of that high-end liquor right and then it's all the same like the idea is like it's all the music is the same like music that's recorded in a studio that costs a lot of money is the same as something that's recorded on someone's computer in their house it's like saying you go to a bar and say well i gave my 15 bucks and they say well you can get rolling rocks they say no i want that Japanese whiskey up there and I want like you know that's what I want I've never heard it put that way well, I never said it before I never thought of it before <laughs> no, but it's I just, great I just, I just thought of that right now so I'm gonna have to remember I said that write it down <laughs> well we have it on tape now okay but yeah I mean it's really bad but you are keeping busy and you seem to have a lot of interesting projects coming yeah in. oh I'm always you know it's about manifesting you having a dream and manifesting it is really what's about at this point in my career and you have to be it's a little harder to manifest things out of nowhere than just get a call to show up and, and play but that's what I'm doing yeah I'm just and I've you know I have a tour with my, this band I have with Billy Martin uh, I have a brass band I have, like, I, and the thing is I have a lot of projects with people all over the world and sometimes they're all working and sometimes they're not working mm-hmm. so you can get really busy crazy busy like it's been very interesting like not this year last year but for two years before I was in Europe every month for probably for 24 months no does it always guarantee that it makes money though when yeah. you go to Europe oh yeah okay yeah because yeah. yeah. you know I hear about bands going there and not making money that's okay. not me no. okay. yeah I don't do that well you it's know, a pleasure meeting you great like, meeting thank you. you so much for doing awesome. that awesome well thank you for uh, putting music out in the world we need people like you who are passionate about it and love it and want to keep well if you get a chance to see Steven I mean I I know he's a killer player but just watching him on stage is mesmerizing thank you sir thank you awesome